ESPN Kansas City presents Golf Underground with Kevin Ward and Brian Sullivan. Welcome to Golf Underground ESPN Radio back in the studio. This is two days in a row, Wordle. Payne Stewart Week, baby. This is Payne Stewart Week. Oh, my gosh. Do you think when I'm, you know... uh, when I uh, pass on to the uh, the other life, um, people will be doing shows about me for two, <laughs> the two, two, two days. The Soli Week? Huh? I don't think they're going to do the Soli oh, Week. Are you kidding me? To, to commemorate my uh, two-time net club championships? <laughs> if they do, there's going to be several pints involved. <laughs> <laughs> Although, pay, listen, Payne Stewart certainly was a much um, much more fashion-forward dresser than I was. My, my, uh, my uh, 2005... Um, uh, member guest, uh, 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 what is it? Greg Norman shirts that are all puffy. Yeah, you know? they look money. They, I still wear them. You know, they're... they look money. Well, I was I was speaking with our uh, our our guest uh, for today. That's uh, that's going to come on here in a second. And our, all of our ties, all of our roots get keep getting pulled back to Austin, Texas. It's I unbelievable. Know, I see that all these connections. I was telling Kevin about that, and um. But anyhow, it's pretty fun to have another Austinite, and this is going to be a fantastic show. Do you think they'll invite us back? Uh, I think we're going to have to go back and spend some time with Kevin. Well, there's been a little radio silence with uh, Marianne Gildersleeve, the uh, great champion from the Harvey Penick Academy. And and I I don't uh, You know why? Because you didn't send the ribs that you said you were going to send from Jack Stack. No, you know what I'm going to send her? What? I've got her a really unique gift. I'm going to send her a, um, a signed flag by Mr. Watson. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, could you have done it like a week after? I mean, no. are you letting the stew for eight months? <laughs> she, I mean, she won't. She'll forget how how nice you were to her. No, maybe we'll send it to Tom Kite instead. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Tom Kite, yeah, another Austin fella, but um, he, you know, he wasn't quite as nice as uh, Marianne Gildersleeve, was he? He was great. He was great. I love Tom. Yeah, of course you do. Well, listen, we are honored today because we have Kevin Robbins. Again, speaking of Austin, Texas, but probably even more so speaking of U.S. Open 20 years back, 1999, as was uh, talked about in yesterday's radio program, is uh, it, we're celebrating Payne Stewart Week. That's what you and I are doing. And by the way, this is the Front Nine. It's brought to you by Star Drywall. If um, if you're looking to make your home a little more energy efficient, go to starcompanieskc.com. Brian Bainsberg, a great sponsor of of the program. And so uh, let me do a formal bio, an intro for, uh, for our boy Kevin Robbins. Now, he's, he's an author, um, a journalist. Um, he, he, he worked for more than two decades as a reporter for newspapers right here in the heartland, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Tennessee, Texas. He uh, joined the University of Texas at Austin School of Journalism in 2012 as an associate professor. If you look at the number of articles this guy has written um, on the Masters, U.S. Open, PGA, and you know, beyond that, Final Four, Super Bowl, He's a hell of a writer, and so we wanted to get him in because um, you were you found out somehow that this guy was going to create or was in the middle of writing a book about Payne Stewart. And, yeah, uh, he just created it. It's going to uh, hit the newsstands and uh, and be available for uh, purchase in October. So, thanks for coming on the show, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, may I make a quick correction? So. Anne, Anne Marie Gildersh- Gildersleeve. Yeah. Uh, not not Mary Ann. Anne Marie. Anne Marie. Uh, she's a good pal of mine. She's so, the best. You know, if you if you need me to smooth things over down here, I'm happy to make that call. Oh, which you, you know, she treated us like royalty. She's it was the un- best. She's great. She took us into the learning center, and we sat there in our little chairs interviewing. And Kev, you'll like this one. I asked her a very deep question. As you know, she's she, her grandfather raised her, and um, you know what a fan she is of her grandfather. And I asked her this Barbara Walters question. I mean, this thing was getting, like, deep, you know? I thought I saw a little tear coming out of my own eye. 
And, you know, Wardo here has ADD, and Gary Woodland runs by and as he's on his way to the first tee box and says, Hey, Jerry! Jerry, look at us! I, and took this tender moment between Anne-Marie and I and just blew the thing up. So would you, maybe I think that's probably the problem just, why she won't just respond tell to her, let her know that you're on Golf Underground, and those guys are so charming. She'll love that. She is awesome. What a <laughs> I'll great, do that first thing. And Dale Morgan, too, by the way. You talk about salt of the earth guy. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Con- consummate, consummate club professional, a, a true servant's heart. Uh, amen. Well, well said. Okay, so, so maybe uh, tell us a little bit about this, um, this great book you are writing, and why on earth are you writing a book about Payne Stewart 20 years after his U.S. Open at uh, Pioneers well, number 2? Well, that's kind of exactly why. Um, I, I thought that his life and his career, especially that last year of his life and his career, 1999, uh, deserved a reappraisal, and I think we needed sort of the passage of time, a lot of time, to uh, give it that consideration. So um, the book the book is done. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy to report that literally two hours ago I returned the proof pages to my publisher. It is it is 100 percent right. out of my hands at, the, at this point. Can Congratulations! Isn't that Thank a great you. feeling? It's so good. Um, <laughs> So so yeah, I mean we're it, it's finished. It's it's a book about it's a book about 1999. Um, it's it's not a biography, but it is biographical in parts. Uh, and that was a it was just a, a, a remarkable season. Not just because Payne had this professional comeback. He hadn't won since '95, and and then wins twice in '99. Uh, but it was also it's also a story about a man who changed who he was. Uh, a man who looked at him at his life and his past and wasn't satisfied with who he who he was and he made a decision to change and he changed in a lot of ways uh the reasons were multiple and then he died he died in october of uh, 25th of, of 99 we don't get to see how the story ends but uh, but it's a good story nonetheless and i'm really happy and, and uh, honored to talk with you about it today yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Hey, Kevin, I want to dive in during this segment a little bit about the kind of we covered uh, covered yesterday a little bit more of his college and kind of what he was doing then and how he was playing and a little bit of the attitude or maybe the cockiness that went along with that. Talk a little bit about the early ages on tour and also kind of leading into that 99 season and, and some of the things that you touched on in the book. Sure. So what's what's interesting about his character was that he wasn't a guy who enjoyed a lot of early success. Uh, you probably know that he didn't win an SMU, uh, Southern Methodist University, until he was a senior. Um, and then he won the 1979 Missouri Amateur. And then he, he, tried, he went to Q school and failed. So he went to Asia and Australia and played there, came back, tried Q school again, didn't make it. It took him three times, three uh, attempts to, to get on the PGA Tour. Uh, he won a uh, an off-major event called the Magnolia in Mississippi, uh, opposite of the Masters. I think it was in 82 or 83, but it didn't count as an official victory. Back then, the PGA Tour didn't count the, the tournaments opposite the majors as official victories. So it took, it took him a long time to really get a footing uh, on the tour. And so when you think about his reputation and how we know him today as this kind of cocksure, arrogant, churlish even flamboyant character um there was something inside him (laughs) 
that uh, that 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 told him that he was going to be a star, even though he wasn't producing results. Mm, got it. Got what it. is it though? What was it? Because if you're Hard if, if you don't say, if you feel success early on, certainly at SMU, and you know you're you're banished to to, to Asia to try to prove yourself. How difficult was it for him to uh, retain his confidence slash cockiness without smelling a whole lot of success other than the 1979 Missouri State Am? Or State, yeah, it was State Am. State Am, yeah. State Am, yeah. Um, well, I don't know. Was it confidence or was it insecurity? Uh, now, I never knew Payne Stewart. We should be, I should be clear about sure. that. Um, in fact, I never saw him play golf in person. <clears throat> I was aware of him. Uh, and I followed his career because I'm a Missourian. I'm from Kansas City. So he and Tom Watson and Hale Irwin were, were the three players I followed the most because they were, you know, from my home state. But uh, so I never knew him. I never interviewed him. Uh, so I can't, I can't say with a 100% certainty how he was able to maintain his, his confidence. But I, but I do wonder if we mistake confidence in, the, in Payne's context. I wonder if we mistake confidence for insecurity. Uh, here was a guy who was always pining for attention. Uh, that that's why he dressed in the plus fours. That's why he wore a flat cap. Uh, that's why he was loud, and that's why he he pranked fellow players sometimes <laughs> to their chagrin. Um, you know, he wanted to be noticed. He wanted to be remembered. His father, Bill Stewart, who was a great amateur, he won the senior Missouri Senior Am in 1979, the same year that Payne won the Am. First time, I think it's the only time it's ever been done in Missouri golf history. His father was a traveling salesman, sold mattresses in, out of Springfield, Missouri. And he too dressed in these wildly flamboyant uh, and memorable outfits. And he told his son, Payne was his only son, he told his son, you must be remembered. No matter what you do, people need to remember who you are. And I think that I think that's largely why Payne was who he was. And plus, also, I mean, look at Payne Stewart. He's six foot tall, weighs 180 pounds. He's got this, you know, flowing blonde hair, these gorgeous blue eyes. I mean, he he when he looked at himself in the mirror, he saw somebody admirable. Right. And, you know, the girls in, in high school fawned over him and the same in college. Everybody wanted to be like him. So. You know, all of that, as a, as a boy growing up in, in small town, I'll call Springfield a small town, small town Missouri, you know, that, that sort of told him he was special. And, and he was an outstanding golfer, and the fact that he didn't win wasn't because he wasn't good. It's just because he didn't try hard enough. He didn't practice enough in college. Yeah. You, um, and that's, that's what's what he learned to do in Asia. You know, and I think that's what's great about our game, right? At all ages, every everybody on tour that's made that's made it or tried to make it on tour has their own story, right? And and some people peak when they're fifteen, uh, some people peak when they're forty five. I mean, yeah. Look at Scott McCarron this year; he's lighting up right? the lighting up the Champions Tour. So again, I I think that there's a, there's pro, there's so many different factors that go into why it took him a while and. Who knows? Maybe maybe it was the knickers, Sully. Maybe once he got the knickers going in Asia and the plus fours, things really changed. You know, what? I like the fact that there's not one template to to get to success, right? Yeah. 
and certainly that's what uh, you know. That's what Chuck told us again about Crenshaw versus Kite. Two different angles, two different ways to live. One was free flowing, one was in the box, and and that's cool. That's how it should be. All right, hey, we're, we're gonna take commercial break. By the way, listeners, make sure you go to buykevinrobbins.com. That's b y kevinrobbins.com. His book, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, The Year Golf Changed Forever. Um, I look forward to this read. And after the commercial break, I want to get a little bit deeper into how a Payne Stewart book was, uh, you're, you're, you're talking about more than Payne Stewart. You're talking about his impact on how golf changed. And so I want to know not only how did Payne change the, the game of golf, but what happened in 1999, 20 years from this week, U.S. Open, where golf changed for all of us. So come on back. You're on the Golf Underground, ESPN Radio. Do you have retirement dreams about perfecting your swing and spending your time on the green? Or maybe you have a bucket list of golf courses you'd like to travel to. Whatever your financial goals are, Mariner Wealth Advisors is your advocate. We take the same care in understanding where you stand today as we do in understanding where you want to be in the future. Then, we help you set a personalized plan to help you achieve your long-term vision. Contact Mariner Wealth Advisors today to start your financial planning journey. Visit MarinerWealthAdvisors.com to find a location near you. Mariner Wealth Advisors, otherwise known as MWA, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Registration of an investment advisor does not imply a certain level of skill or training. For additional information about MWA, including fees and services, please contact MWA or refer to the disclosures on our website. Please read the disclosure statement carefully before you invest or send money. This advertisement should not be considered investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities. Hey, Brian Sullivan here, and I've got a tip for you. You've got to head to Unforked. It's an amazing restaurant. What I like about these guys is they promise to buy and support seasonal local ingredients first. And I love the fact that they source from smaller, family, GAP-certified, or organic farms, prime-going regions, artists and producers. All I'm getting at is, if you like fresh stuff, Unforked is the place to be. And like they say it, fork or no fork, you can be sure you're getting the highest quality, socially responsible ingredients possible. And not to mention, it's delicious. So whether you're out south or downtown, stop by Unforked for a delicious and healthy meal. Sheridan's Unforked. Honest, clean food. Welcome back, Golf Underground ESPN Radio. By the way, this is the Bat Nine. It's brought to you by Cowell Insurance Solutions, the leader when it comes to workers' comp. So check them out at Cowell Insurance Solutions. Okay, so, um, hey, we are with Kevin Robbins. As I mentioned before we went on air, you're the second Kevin Robbins I spoke to today. I, I mean, I, this, is, this is a good day for me. Because, but I like this one because golf, he's talking life. Yeah, I mean, the, the, and, and, and when I saw that you also wrote two books on Harvey Penick, I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, are you doing this just because you are learning so much? And are you doing this just for that? Like, what, what's inspiring you to write these books about these amazing people in our game? Oh, man, so many things. Uh, so when I was a reporter, I just didn't have the time. I had a, you know, a three, 365-day-a-year job. Um, but now that I'm teaching it at the University of Texas, I have I have summers. Um, I have five weeks between fall and spring semester. I have time now to uh, to do something like this. Um, 
And also there's an expectation, you know, when you're a, a teach at college that you should be doing some sort of uh, outside, you know, project. So scholarship isn't my thing. I'm not a researcher. Right. So I do this. I do this. And golf is what I know, you know, like it's my it's where I'm most comfortable. It's what I wrote about as a newspaper reporter for many years. So I know a lot of the principles and I know the game. And so it just seemed to fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm again. I'm I'm very eager uh, to read it. Okay. Now, now before the break, you were talking a little bit about uh, Payne's uh, psyche and how his the, the lessons from his dad <clears throat> were to uh, you know live a life where you are noticed. Mm-hmm. Do Do you feel? And he also talked a little bit about his confidence, or maybe even lack of confidence, and and maybe that being the stimulus to making him feel like I have to compensate. Was all of this dress and this personality comp, uh, a compensation uh, or compensating for not really being a confident fella? It's possible. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't know, and we can't know because Payne died in, in 1999. He can't answer that question for us. Uh, he was not, as a young man, uh, a terribly reflective, uh, uh, or I should say, not, he was not terribly capable of reflection. He wasn't very inward-looking um, or introspective until until about 1988 and, and certainly throughout 1999 when he changed fundamentally as a person. And I think if he were here now, he he would answer that question honestly. And I, I think, if, you know, best-case scenario, it's a little bit of both confidence and insecurity which can play off of each other in, a, in right. a, uh, an interesting way mm-hmm. um but but you know we we just won't we just don't know right um you know he would but he was somebody he was he was a character he was a brand he wanted to be the center of attention he wanted to make sure that everybody had a good time he and and he did he did what he thought was best to make that happen i mean he was like light-hearted in the best and worst possible ways. Um, so, so, uh, so, but I, you know, I wish we knew, but I think it's a combination of insecurity and confidence. Yep. So right. Kevin dive in a little bit to, you referenced his win at Pebble in, in 99, cl- clearly in February. Talk about a little bit about that and how that was led uh, to success at Pinehurst. Right. Um, so when Payne came to Pebble Beach in 1999 for the AT&T, um, he came to a golf course that he had played well throughout his entire career, even in the in the lean years when he wasn't winning. He uh, typically would would finish in the top ten at at Pebble Beach at the AT&T. He arrived that year uh, on the heels of a terrible slump. Um, some people might even have considered it, considered it a career-ending slump. He hadn't won since 1995 uh, at the Shell Houston Open. He, he did finish in second at the 1998 U.S. Open at the Olympic Club. He was the wire-to-wire leader until the back nine on Sunday when a lot of things conspired against him. He hit into a divot, in the, a sand-filled divot, in the fairway at Olympic on number 12, which resulted in a bogey. And meanwhile, Lee Jansen playing in a, uh, a group ahead was just grinding in the, away in the, the way that people, the players like Lee Jansen do. And uh, Payne had a 15 footer on the 18th hole to send it to a Monday playoff and he missed the putt. So 
that's the baggage that he brought to the AT&T in 99. Now, he won that tournament, but it was rain-shortened to 54 holes. So when he, when he accepted the trophy, which he did gladly and graciously, and he was happy to win, uh, let's be clear, but he also understood that he had not won a four-round tournament, and he needed to prove to himself and maybe to his peers on the PGA Tour that he could win a 72-hole uh, tournament, and that's exactly what he did in June at Pinehurst. Talk a little bit about leading up to that tournament and then, and then maybe what some people may not know about that final round um, that some people overlook. Uh, are you talking about Pinehurst? The yeah. Open? yeah. So he missed the cut in Memphis the week before the U.S. Open. And so he and, and your, your friend Chuck Cook and mm-hmm. uh, Payne's caddy Mike Hicks, they went to Pinehurst early. They left on Saturday. They devised a plan to uh, attack is the wrong word to manage uh, Pinehurst number two. Pinehurst number two is a a Donald Ross course that features these incredibly domed greens. And it's, you know, I thought I understood what that meant until I actually went and played number two. Uh, But it's hard to appreciate until you're actually under those, those greens are underfoot, but it's like playing to the top of a bowl. So if a green, if a green is 8,000 square feet, there's only like 5,000 pinnable square feet on, on that green because the edges run away. So anyway, they devised this, this plan to manage those greens and they took a yardage book uh, and Payne only took six or seven clubs out for his first two practice rounds. No long clubs, by the way. They didn't even mess with shots off the tee. They went directly to the green surrounds, and Payne learned to hit these bump-and-run shots. Uh, Well, I should say he relearned, because these are the shots that he learned in Asia in the early 80s when he wasn't on the PGA Tour. Mm -hmm. These are the the shots that those players on that tour taught him how to play. So he relearned, he retaught himself to play these low running bump and run shots up to the holes off of these shaved banks around the greens. And he and Chuck and Mike Hicks, they marked in the yardage guide, in the yardage book, where to miss and where not to miss. And it was an incredibly smart plan because Payne didn't miss an approach shot until the fourth round and he only missed one shot and it didn't cost him a double. He'd made an eight or 12 footer for bogey, which might've been the biggest putt of the tournament for him. That's awesome. Yeah. Chuck has told me, talked a lot about uh, over the years of our relationship about that, how they marked up the yardage book. And basically Mm -hmm. they put a, put a small X where on, where on the yardage book he needed to hit the ball and he did it, you know, 95% of the time. And again, if you miss it, you know, he, he made bogeys. Everyone's going to make bogeys, but eliminating those big scores is clearly what, what they did a good job of. So that's pretty cool when it comes to the prep and, you know, a great story. Chuck told me when, if, when they had the uh, U.S. Open there, I was at the qualifier. I forgot, God, when, what, what year was that? And he said, all right, if you get through, I'll give you his yardage book. <laughs> I didn't get through. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you didn't get through. Yeah. You didn't get the yardage I book. Didn't, <laughs> I didn't want all that pressure. So 
Hey, Kev, a question for you here. Um, now that today was a big day for you, you finally sent your proof in. It's it's go time, and there's going to be a lot of folks reading this thing. If Payne Stewart sat on his easy chair, he's on his rocking chair, he's got his, his fancy outfit on, and he's just going to spend a day reading Kevin Robbins' book. He closed, the last page closes, and he thinks about what he just read. What do you think he would say about it? Wow, what a good question. Um, here's what I'm going to give you two answers, what I hope and what's possible. What I hope is that he would think about it for a few moments, and and he would say to himself, that wasn't the easiest thing for me to read, but it's it's accurate. So, and and here's why I think that um, I had a, I had a number of people who were close to pain uh, reading this book over my shoulder. I would finish you know sixteen thousand words, which is a section, uh, four chapters, and I'd send it to people, people who've known pain. Uh, as long as anybody has known pain. Um, and so all along, um, I had these, these, these very important people telling me, you're getting it right, okay? Um, and plus, like, I'm a reporter, I'm a, I, I'm a journalist, that's all I've ever been, so I don't deal in speculation right. very well. Uh, I don't fabricate, I don't make up things. I deal with what I have, I deal with the facts that I can prove and that are verifiable. So that's why I hope Payne would look at it and say it's accurate. But I also think he would be, um, I think that, oh, you know, it would be hard for him to read because he, as a younger man, he did and said things that just weren't cool and didn't go over well. <laughs> and, and he was he was maligned in the press. Um, and I think also probably after he finished my book, he'd go, yep, you know, that's, uh, there you go. The press is ripping on me again. Um, but, uh Anyway, that's that's how I I think he would look at it. I think I hope he would look at it anyway. As it, it's accurate, that's who I was. Um, and by the by, by the time the story moves to Pinehurst and then moves on to Brookline at the Ryder Cup, uh, in in literally the last month of his life, Payne has completely changed who he is. Yeah. And I, you know, and and so that's that's why I think this book. That's why it resonated with me is. You know, everybody wants to be better. We all look back on our past and we have regrets of some kind, right? Mm -hmm. um, we all want to get better. That's just human nature. And and that's what Payne was doing um, in 1999. Well, all right. Well, when we come back, I want to dive in a little bit more on what Payne did to do to get better or to, to get better and uh, kind of figure out why he did make those changes and become less of a, of, of a quote-unquote arrogant you know what? Um, so, which, by the way, um, aren't many of us sort of jerky growing <laughs> up? I mean, when you're in your twenties, right. you're not the same guys when you're fifty. I mean, <laughs> it, it, and and so maybe th there would have been a, a bit of that pain sitting down and thinking of his his old self and maybe saying, "What a little jackass you were!" Because I know even I do it. I look back in you know college, and I'm like, "You cocky little." So I think you, we all mature as, as we age. At least we're supposed to, right? So, hey, we're with Kevin Robbins. Go to buykevinrobbins.com. What a wonderful book, not only about Payne Stewart, but about uh, um, how golf has changed in, in the 20 years. This is U.S. Open Week. You are on the Golf Underground on ESPN Radio. Cowell Insurance Services is your leading program administrator for workers' compensation. 
They're dedicated to meeting the unique challenges of the insurance industry and assisting employers in reducing their costs. CIS has provided insurance, claim, and loss control services to various industries, including trucking, construction, retail convenience stores, and healthcare, as well as public entities for over 30 years. They work with both retail agents and industry clients, or a combination of the two. If you're tired of fighting the rising costs of premiums and claims, give Cowell Insurance Services a call. Their dedicated staff is ready to find you the best insurance option at the most competitive price. They can help to define or enhance your safety program in order to move you in the right direction in reducing your claim and premium costs. Contact Cowell Insurance Services today, 816-214-4070. Are you ready to focus more on your golf game this year instead of enduring the process of building a brand new home? Look no further than BCI Bowen Custom Home. They will help you determine the best opportunity for you and your family given your current situation. Do I do a remodel? Do I build the dream house I've always wanted? Your next home might be waiting for you from the many specs and furnished models they have available in Southern Johnson County. Whether you're located in Shawnee or Leewood, Mike McCown and his award-winning team are interested in helping you determine what may be best for you and your family. Again, if you're looking to spend more time on the links and eliminate the stressors of the building remodel process, call BCI Bowen at 913-444-2369 or on the web at bcibowen.com. Dismal River Club is a five-star private golf and hunting club located in the Sandhills of western Nebraska. 36 holes of championship golf, including a Tom Doak design and a Jack Nicklaus design, a private runway, luxury cabins, and incredible meals prepared by their executive chef make Dismal River Club one of the nation's most unique and sought-after golf and outdoor experiences. There is truly something for everyone. Visit DismalRiver.com to get more information about the new spa activities, family activities, membership opportunities, and corporate retreat packages. Welcome back. Golf Underground ESPN Radio in studio with your boy Sully and Wardo. We are honored today to have Kevin Robbins. He is the author of a wonderful book that is, uh, that is going to be hitting the stand shortly. You can, you can go check it out right now. You can, you can pre-order, I believe, right now. It's called The Last Stand of Pain Stewart. The year golf changed forever. Certainly a great read. And if you're as fired up as Wardo is an, uh, and I are with U.S. Open Week, what the heck? Go to Amazon. Go to How about Barnes & Noble? Where, where, can we, where can we get this book, Mr. Robbins? You can pre-order it at, at Barnes and & Noble and, and Amazon, and I guess wherever you can pre-order books on the Internet. Um, and then uh, on October 8th, it'll be in bookstores everywhere. All right, cool. Hey, now, before the break, we were talking about sort of the evolution of Payne Stewart, how, uh, how something changed in him. D- tell us a little bit more about how he changed as he grew older and, and a bit more mature. Yeah, and really the most fascinating part of, of this period of time that we're talking about because in so Payne won the, the 1991 U.S. Open at Hazeltine in you know in glorious fashion a Monday playoff over Scott Simpson and and then you know he was he was a, a bona fide star at that point he won the 89 PGA he was winning regularly um, and and then he just kind of went all in you know he 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 played all over the world and and uh, if he got, you know, an offer to get paid to play somewhere in Morocco, he'd go do that. And he was just like this man about the world. And uh, it burned him out physically. Um, and he was, playing, he was playing equipment that wasn't right for him. Uh, he was playing too much. He was, he was way out of balance. And so he quit winning. And he really quit contending. And so here was a guy who had been 
you know, publicized and written about and interviewed on Golf Channel and TV for all of those years, and then suddenly he was gone. And, um, you know, that had, that had an, uh, an effect on him. Uh, and he, he, and then, he, then he endured this slump. Uh, when he won in 1995 in Houston, he didn't really win that golf tournament. Scott Hope gave up like a six-shot lead on the last nine holes, yeah. and Payne backed into that. So here was a guy who went through a period of, uh, you know, uh, dormancy. Um, nobody was paying attention to him. Reporters were no longer really seeking him out for interviews because he wasn't winning. And I think that that had a lot to do with the the changes that he made as a person. Um it was, it was a lot of different things, okay? I mean, so when, when uh, we look back at that, at that decade, when he emerged again at the 1998 U.S. Open, reporters were like, wow, where's Payne Stewart been? Look, he's, this, he's suddenly this changed man. He, was a, he lost with grace and with sportsmanship, and he was, he was nice and, and uh, uh, collegial with, with reporters, which is something that he hadn't been in his career. And, and so everybody was like, wow, suddenly he's this changed man. Well, it wasn't sudden. It took a long, long time. It took a slump. It took just maturity. He was 42 years old in 1999. He was, you know, more of a grown man. Uh, his children were getting older. He cared more about spending time with them at home. He wanted to spend time at home in Orlando with Tracy, his wife. Uh, the, there's a faith angle to this. It's undeniable. I think it was overplayed in the media in 1999 because it was simple. But when Payne won the 1999 U.S. Open, he was famously wearing that rubber bracelet with WWJD on mm-hmm. it. And a reporter asked about it, and, and Payne had this, like, testimonial, this confessional up there in the press conference after the fourth round where, uh, you know, he proclaimed his, his faith in God. His, he was baptized. Uh, so there was that, too. It was just a lot of different things. And here's one that's not really discussed all that much. So... His buddy Paul Azinger lived over in Bradenton in Tampa, a couple of hours away or an hour or so away from, from Orlando. And he and Payne were, they were like, I don't know, they weren't close friends. Payne didn't really have a, a close friend. I don't know if he was capable of having a close friend. But, but he and Payne, he and Paul were buddies. They were pals. They were like fraternity brothers, right? And so they were kind of known as friends. And then Paul got diagnosed with cancer in 1993. And... Everybody kind of fell away from Paul, except for Payne. Payne would drive over when they weren't playing golf. To, uh, when he wasn't uh, playing golf, he would drive over from Orlando and just go fishing with Paul in Paul's boat while Paul was undergoing chemotherapy and treatment for his cancer. And, you know, I talked to Paul Azinger about this, that that was so meaningful to him that Payne stayed true. Because I think, you know, on the PGA Tour, guys are close but they're not close and when somebody has a life-threatening diagnosis like cancer they don't know how to react they don't know how to deal with that so they just kind of they just kind of go away they ignore it but not pain so i also think pain saw his own mortality uh through paul's in 1993 Mm. and i think it forced him in 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 no small way to take an inventory of his own life. You know, if I died tomorrow, what could I say about my life? What Mm -hmm. would people say about my life? So it was really a lot of different factors that changed Payne Stewart over the years. It was not sudden. It was not just finding God. 
it was a lot of different things. Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Yeah, and well, uh, one final question before we, we sort of move on to to, to the, the the bigger picture of golf changing that that he was certainly uh, a main character in. Um, in reading your book, uh, what things would he be most proud of that you stated about him? What observation came up? You certainly brought this up: his faith in God, right? So, if it, I mean, if he if he was wearing that bracelet, he, <clears throat> he just got baptized. That was a huge deal for him, right? And I do think that changed him. Um, but what else would he be like? All right, hey, Robbins, you got that one right. Well, give us that one, <laughs> and then I want to know this one: the one you got that one right, Kev. But I think you kind of screwed up on this one. G- <laughs> g- 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 give me that. Right. Uh- I think that he would he would look back at his conduct and his play at the 1999 U.S. Open, and, and I hope my characterization of that, he would look back on that as, as a source of pride, uh, as well as should be. Um, and I think that he would look back at his role on the 99 Ryder Cup team with a source of pride, too. He didn't come into that Ryder Cup playing particularly well. He was not a captain's pick. He qualified for it, by the way. Uh, and uh, he didn't win a single point for his team. Um, and captain, uh, the captain, Ben Crenshaw, sat him Saturday afternoon. Uh, I think that was a blow to his, uh, you yeah. know, his, his humility. But, uh, uh, I, but he did serve a role, most notably Saturday night. So uh, the team had just been beaten soundly again for the second straight day by Team Europe. They were down 10-6 going into single Sunday. So all of the players go back to the four seasons in Boston and, you know, they have to do something. So they have this, they go around the room, players and the wives and talk about why they're grateful. And that's a weird concept because here they are down 10, six, like they're getting strummed by, by a really good European team led by Sergio Garcia and Colin Montgomery. Hey, Kev, did, 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 hey, I'm sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you, but, but yeah. Payne initiated that exercise? No, Payne did not initiate the exercise. It might have been Crenshaw. Okay. Um, but, you know, when it came, when it came time for, for Payne to talk, he, he looked around the room. He looked at people like Marco Mira and, and Hal Sutton, whose fathers were still alive. Bill Stewart, by the way, had died. Bill, Payne's father died. Uh, back in the, like the mid-90s, 94, 95, somewhere around there. <clears throat> and he looked at Mark O'Meara and Hal Sutton and Justin Leonard and Davis and said, you know, you're really lucky. Your dad is here. Your dad is, is able to watch you play this Ryder Cup. He looked at O'Meara. He said, your dad saw you win the Masters at the British Open last year. You know, and uh, it's just like people, like people in the room, they just felt that. It, so they felt it like coat them. Hmm. And um, all of a sudden, I wouldn't say that the, the single Sunday became irrelevant. It didn't. But it took on a different kind of meaning, right? So it wasn't so much about what can we do to win or, or how can we avoid being humiliated one more time. And, you know, uh, it was more about appreciating the moment. Like, yeah, I get to go out tomorrow and play this wonderful golf course, the country club where Francis Wilmette won the 1913 U.S. Open. And, yeah, well, I might lose my match. And, yeah, our team might lose the Ryder Cup. But you know what? There are people who love me out there in the gallery watching me. And Payne doesn't have that. So there, there was just this indelible moment uh, Saturday night 
uh, in the team room at the Four Seasons, and Payne played a really, really big role in that. And I think he would look back today, if he were alive, he'd look back and, and, and think to himself, you know, wow, I really did serve a purpose on that team. Even though I didn't win a single point and I wasn't playing well, I mattered. Yeah. I love it. So one one final question. I don't think on a on a lighter side on a on a pretty deep segment. Do you think I'm guessing that Payne wasn't responsible for those shirts that they wore the last day of Brookline? <laughs> <laughs> no. That would be uh I know who's responsible for that, but in order to uh protect certain identities i'm just going to say that would be somebody else <laughs> oh come on kev <laughs> come on okay, G- give us crenshaw. the insight who did it who did it i think it was Jul- i think it was julie crenshaw ben's wife ah, she's a wonderful <laughs> wonderful person that's all right see in my house my wife is a much better picker outer of my um khaki pants and bad polos than than i am by the way julie <laughs> by the way when we were in austin julie crenshaw told us no to haven't been on the show so we're gonna have to recircle circle back on that well, listen. We I got, can help you there too. See, there we can. Guys, dialed. Mike, we're going to use you. I mean, it, it, you better <laughs> be careful, right? We're going to be staying at your house during the Dell match just, play next time. I just offered to fix his golf swing. He's going to Hawaii tomorrow, and he's sending me videos. So, Ooh, that's good. Well, I will tell you, hey, Kev, he's uh, Wardo here. He's he's a hell of a coach, and he's very humble. I- I take that, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very humble. Okay, so listen, hey, we're with Kevin Robbins. Go to buykevinrobbins.com. What a wonderful book about Payne Stewart. And he's got some other great books about Harvey Penick. And just, man, if you like to read and you, you just you love our great golf game, you you got to check it out. The Last Stand of Payne Stewart and others. So come on back here on the Golf Underground, ESPN Radio. Hey, what's up, Golf Underground Nation? This is Brian Sullivan, co-host of the Golf Underground with the Greenside Cigar Company, here to tell you about the hot new cigars that are about taking over the golf industry. And, yeah, I'm talking about the patented Birdie Stogies. You guys have been seeing for sale all over the local golf courses. These cigars come highly rated and are the ultra-premium alternative to that dried-up old stick you've been using to celebrate your made birdie putts. Designed to be carried in every golf bag and saved as a reward for celebratory achievement, our cigars are bringing golfers added relaxation, fun, and perhaps maybe even a little luck. From mild to medium, smooth to sweet, we have a cigar suitable for every taste palette and golfers at all skill levels. So no matter your celebratory occasion, enjoying a victory stogie at the clubhouse after a low round, immediately after a made birdie putt, or hey, even to help you relax and simply celebrate being out in the golf course, make sure you never approach the first tee again without one of our beautiful cigars in your golf bag. So learn more and order online at greensidecigars.com or just Google the birdie stogie because after all, there can only be one. You buy new clubs, you read golf magazines, you watch the Golf Academy, and you pound balls on the driving range until your hands bleed. But your score never changes. Well, a true golf simulator from Midwest Golf Simulators in Olathe, Kansas, is the answer. Play golf every day in the comfort of your own home. The easy-to-read instant feedback you get after every shot allows you to see what your swing flaws are, which allows you to make the adjustments you need to get your ball to go where you want it to go. So lower your scores and be the player you always thought you could be. Call Dave at Midwest Golf Simulators for more info or a demo at 913-915-4108. New golf clubs, a big-screen TV to watch the U.S. Open, or maybe even a new golf cart that I've got my eye on. No matter how you choose to spend the savings, if you're looking to put a dent in your monthly heating and cooling bills, the answer may be right over your head. If your attic isn't insulated properly, you're missing out on a prime opportunity to cut costs. Call the certified energy experts at Star Companies, Inc., 816-353-2160 for a free estimate to learn how they can help you save money. Oh, heck, I'll buy the clubs, put them in my new golf cart, watch the U.S. Open on my big screen. 
after I play a round of golf. Better give Star Companies, Inc. a call today to start saving big. That's Star Companies, Inc., 816-353-2160, or visit StarCompaniesKC.com. Welcome back, Off Underground ESPN Radio. We are uh, in studio with Sully and Wardo back. We're not on the road uh, with some cheesy little microphone and uh, an Instagram Live, are we? No, we're not. We've got <laughs> these big, big things in front of us. And, and how about a big round of applause for our new producer who's, uh, who's been in studio with us two days? Um, I mean, you know, he, you're Thanks smiling. You smile back there. You, I mean, he, I see, I mean, you're enjoying some of the stories. He, it's funny. It's we, good stuff. we may have to recruit you, all right? Nathan's out. You're in. That's it. That's it. All right. Hey, so so listen, um, Kev. Before uh, the break, we talked about a lot of a lot of great things and sort of the uh, the um, evolution of, uh, of pain. But uh, during the break, right now, we were discussing about how the golf game changed, not necessarily because of pain, but it, 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 it sort of marked his death and uh, sort of marked a change in the game. Right? The, the, the maybe old garb versus new garb. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, I should be clear, like it's completely coincidental that that Payne Stewart happened to have uh, this tremendous season in 1999. And and then he and then he died in October of that year. Uh, It's completely coincidental to the shift in in what was happening in golf. But it did happen. I mean, it was actually it was there. So Tiger wins the Masters in 1997. You know, that changes everything. Big TV contract. Everybody's paying attention to this young star who hits it. You know, his swing in 1997, it's impossible to describe the violence uh, of that golf swing. But he was playing a game that, that, uh, you know, as Jack Nicklaus said, I'm playing a game, he plays a game with which I am unfamiliar. Um, Hitting it, you know, as far as possible and, Maybe it, it goes into the rough, but, hey, you've got a wedge in your hand instead of a six iron from the fairway. What would you rather have, right? Um, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a shift in golf that we saw. Its first glimpse was the 1991 PGA at Crooked Stick with John Daly. Mm-hmm. So it's coming like full bloom in 97. Tiger doesn't win in 1998 because he's rebuilding his swing. And then in 99, he just runs the table at the end of the season. Everybody will remember. So he wins at Firestone, and he wins the PGA Championship at Medina. Everybody remembers the scissor kick and Sergio Garcia. Sergio also was one of these young players, you know, with this amazing lag in his in his driver swing and hit the ball as, uh, farther than anybody can, had ever seen a player hit the ball just like Tiger and Phil and all these young players who were making their emergence at the, at the end of the decade. And meanwhile, here, here's Payne Stewart, 42, Mark O'Meara, Hal Sutton, um, Tom Lehman, all these guys on that Ryder Cup team who are in their 40s, all these players born before 1960. And they were not playing that kind of golf. They didn't learn to play that kind of golf because they couldn't. They didn't have – graphite shafts and titanium heads. They didn't have solid core balls. Um, They learned golf as kids with persimmon, steel shafts, forged blades, wound balls. You could not swing 110 miles an hour at a wound ball. You'd never find it. So they had to learn to play this restrained, kind of wily, 
uh, you know, feel kind of golf. They shape the golf ball. They play golf with the soles of their feet, with their fingertips, with their eyes. That's the way they learned to Glasses. play. Yeah. You know, they were they 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 used the technology that was developing during their careers, but they didn't learn golf with that technology. So, you know, in a lot of ways, this story is kind of a goodbye kiss to the way those guys played golf, the way they learned to play golf. Um, And what was happening in 99 with Tiger, you know, running the table at the end. And we all know what he did in 2000, you know, winning at Pebble Beach by 15 uh, it was over. The game had changed. It was bomb and gouge. It was, everybody wanted to hit it as far as Tiger. And that's what we see today. Like Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, those are the monsters Tiger created in 1997 right. and 1999. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about that on this show. It's just, you know, me me kind of being in the golf fitness arena. I mean, golf fitness was nothing, you know, pre-99, no. right? And, and Think about player. Player was ridiculed a little bit for his his fitness regimen and all that, and um, but again, I, I just it it works. It, it's it, whatever level you're playing at, whether you're the, a weekend warrior, if you're taking care of your body, it, it's better in your life and all that. And then, you know, again, if you're doing the right things, I think these kids and the Kepkas of the world start doing it at such a young age that their their swing speeds it just the ball's getting in the way of a of a guy that's a built for to play basketball or football and he's playing golf they're athletes now golf is a sport for athletes now it didn't it, it, it wasn't necessarily in 1999 um you had to have good hand-eye coordination you need you needed to have good mechanics but you didn't need to be you didn't need to look like a you know a strong safety for lsu and um you're right like fitness was beginning to be, become more important mm-hmm. think about other technologies like you know track man uh, video, uh, all of these, all of these technologies that players use now to get better, to get to the top of their game, they were just emerging in uh, at, the, at the turn of the, the century too. So uh, golf was shifting, and it, it was turning. I call I call the golf that we watch now. I call it postmodern golf. Yeah, golf was was turning into post a postmodern style of playing, and it's what we see with DJ, with Kepka, with Rory, um, with all of them. What would you change if you could change anything? And, the ball. And the ball. Peel it back. 100%. Yep. I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, the USDA missed it. Uh, but, you know, the, that's another thing. The Pro V1 was in uh, prototype stage in 1999, and it debuted on the tour in 2000. The ball that changed everything. And uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, I like advancements in, uh, in club head materials and, and graphite shafts. I benefit from those when I go out and play. I'm going to go hit a large bucket of balls in an hour, and I'm going to use equipment that makes it easier for me to play golf. If I went out there with Hogan blades and Wilson staff oiled persimmon uh, 180cc driver heads connected to a true temper steel shaft, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd go find something else to do. Oh, come on. The, the great, 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 big, big, <laughs> big Bertha. I mean, that changed my game. <laughs> it did, yeah. Did you know Did you know that Payne Stewart was the first uh, player to win a major championship with an oversized driver? Really? No. The Wilson Whale. The Wilson I Whale. I remember that. I don't. Yeah, he won the 89 PGA at Kemper Lakes with that. Wow. The Wilson yeah. Whale. Hey, this is interesting, <laughs> Kev. So we sat down with Rocco Mediate and Lee Jansen down in the um, down in Branson. They were playing in this Legends of Golf deal. And it, it's so funny to, to listen, well, the two of them, um, and I'm, I was trying to diagnose 
their their psyche when they were talking about these new young studs. And they they were almost a little pissy, like these guys were blessed. They got all this equipment. Now, they didn't verbalize it that way. But Rocco Immediate looks at us, looks at us and says, you know what? If you give me the ball and you can be me and Lee, put us out in the middle of the fairway 280. You put us 280 and we'll beat anybody on tour. That's the difference. And these guys, mm-hmm. so, you know, you, you've got a lot of friendships in the game of golf. Do you sense this, well, I'll, I guess I'll make it more open-ended. W- what do you think these old guys think of these young guys? And uh, is there jealousy? Is there envy? Is there, we would have kicked your butt anyway, if we had this stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it, it's a good, like, topic for debate. Um, I, I, my my clean and quick answer is I don't know because I really don't talk to people about that. But my sense is that they they envy the younger generation. They're a little bit jealous that I think the younger generation does have it easier. They did have it easier when they were learning golf because they were were learning it with equipment that that made the game easier to play. That's undeniable. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, there's that. But And and that's what I think what, what Mediate was getting at. Like, he didn't learn golf with that stuff. You know, uh, uh, what's his name? Yeah, there's a player on the Champions Tour uh, whose name I'm forgetting. But he famously said to his pro-am partners, like, I could take your equipment and beat you with it, and, but if you tried to play my equipment, you'd have no chance. What he, what he was saying was, you know, when you learn with the stuff that I had to learn with, you can go score with anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't, think, I don't think young players today like JT and, and uh, you know, Ricky Fowler and John Rahm, I don't think they could probably go out there and manage persimmon and steel and balata and forged blades as well as guys. I don't know. I think if if you gave them time, they would. Yeah, it's so different. Well, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, uh, I mean, I could say this, Kev, because as amazingly athletic as I am, (laughs) um, you know, my index has gone from a 7.1 up to a 9.3, and... um, I've got the greatest technology on the planet. I mean, I got the new, I got the new rogue irons, uh, Wardo. Yeah, you know, you got uh, it all. And then still, um, you know, I'm I'm still scooping it. I think I think that the what the old guys, the thing that's not arguable is the old guys. Um, and I I'm getting a little better at this because I'm I consider myself in this new era or postmodern, but. The the older guys would frown upon the big high seven iron that flies two hundred yards and lands in from five feet from the hole and the guy makes a birdie um, because they they were so they they prided themselves so much on playing shots and hitting the draw yeah. or hitting I was even watching something last night on Golf Channel it was talking about Tom Kite was showing how to flight it and hit it low in the Hawaiian winds and he was basically saying you know this becomes more and so I think those guys viewed viewed themselves more as artists of the mm. game, which they probably were, um, where now it's, all right, d- drive it down there as far as you possibly can, and if you're in the rough from 120, gouge it out. Um, I mean, that's kind of how VJ played in his late 40s, and he's still playing that way. You know, he just, he's going to hit it down there as far as he can, and if it's in the rough, he knows he can hit it closer yeah. than somebody out of the fairway from yeah. 150. How about my man Seve Ballesteros with the sounder irons back in the day? He was the shot maker. <laughs> Right. Shape some shots. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Kev, um, thank you so much for joining us today on the, on the Underground. This has been awesome. Ho- hopefully you had some yeah. fun. And well, I w- Final I thing. Yeah. Final thing. We need your U.S. Open pick. Oh, yes. Uh, 
Ah. Well, you know, no, no disrespect to Brooks, but uh, I think I think Rory McIlroy has oh. a trophy on Sunday. Where did you two have like a little? Uh, you've been in cahoots together. That's who Wardo picked. No, I picked. Oh, is that his pick? No, yeah. no, yeah. Yeah. I picked uh, Snedeker. Oh, I thought you went with Rory. I took Snedeker. Hey, listen, I've got a real dark horse here, Robbins. It's uh, I'm going Jim Furyk, raised from the dead. He's like Lazarus. <laughs> he's having a hell of a year. He's he's the value pick. <laughs> All right, well, listen, hey, be sure uh, to go to buykevinrobbins.com, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, among other great books. Um, boy, if you like a good read and great stories, this is authentic journalism at its best. And uh, and, and you're doing, hey, you, you're helping grow the game, my friend. So, Kev, um, we're blessed and honored to have you, buddy. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. All right, Wardo. Hey, we, another, U.S. Open continues, baby. Another great show. Yeah. Payne Stewart Week. That Payne Stewart Week, U.S. Open, and um, and let's hope we, uh, we create some uh, new memories 20 years after Payne Stewart. So come on back next week. You've been on the Golf Underground, ESPN Radio. I'm waking up to ash and dust. I wipe my brow and I sweat my rust. I'm breathing in the chemicals.